Um, hmm. I didn't like mortgage my house for it. Yeah. But, <laughs> but it was putting my money where my mouth was. Yeah. You know, which I think is important. And before taking other people's money, I really felt it was important to like um, prove out that what we were doing was, you know, had a chance to be successful. Hey guys, welcome to Startup Hand-Me-Downs, the podcast that passes insights from founders and thought leaders down to the next generation. I'm your host, Philip Kusumu, and thank you so much for giving me the next 30 minutes of your time. I promise it'll be worth it. So today I had the pleasure of interviewing Brian Berger, who is the founder and CEO of menswear basics brand, Mac Weldon. With over a decade of success in the digital world, Brian created Mac Weldon in 2012, a men's specialty line consisting of underwear, socks, t-shirts, with a focus on design, performance, and functionality. Mac Weldon has grown to become one of the leaders within men's apparel. Prior to starting Mac Weldon, Brian served in several leadership positions within consumer internet and media companies, including Comcast, WebMD, and Excite Me at Home. This was a great interview because Brian really does walk us through the steps of how to go about setting up an e-commerce apparel brand, um, direct to consumer. So if you're thinking of starting an e-commerce business or an apparel brand, or you know someone else who's about to start one, definitely share this interview. Okay, guys. Let's get into the action. Brian, thank you for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. So Brian, when you're at a WeWork event or a networking event, how do you introduce yourself? Well, I have two, I have two, uh, two approaches. Okay. There's the fun approach, which is I sell underwear over the internet. <laughs> okay. And then there's like the corporate approach, which is um, I'm the founder of a direct-to-consumer menswear brand focused on premium essentials, socks, underwear, undershirts, tees. So it really just depends on where I am and, on who, the and person who I'm talking is. to. Okay. You know, I'm, they're equally effective, I think. Yeah, well, but we'll go with the first one for today. Yeah. <laughs> but the latter is a bit of a mouthful. Yeah. <laughs> so um, before we get into Mac Weldon and what you've done here, you weren't always an entrepreneur, were you? So talk to me a little bit about your background, like early life. Yeah, I've, I've always worked in startups, companies that were, um, you know, doing really interesting, innovative things in the consumer internet and right. technology world. Yeah. Um, so that piece of it was very familiar to me. Um, and I always really had a, a, you know, personal goal of being a founder and, you know, going out on my own one day. Right. Um, and every job that I had was really a stepping stone towards that uh, and everything, including going to graduate school and... And even my job immediately prior to doing this, which was at a very large, uh, probably the largest media company in the world, um, was really the sort of education process. So do you think it's important then for entrepreneurs to go through that process of like learning for X amount of years before they jump out? Well, it's hard to say that that it is a prerequisite because some of the greatest entrepreneurs of the world, like look at Mark Zuckerberg, mm. you know, had no experience. Yeah. Uh, they were just really smart, really savvy, really tenacious, really dedicated. Mm-hmm. Um, but for me, uh, I'm the kind of person that 
um, really needs to go through kind of a linear process to get to sort of a goal. And um, a lot of it had to do with just, you know, building skills, building confidence, building relationships, right. getting perspective. Yeah. And, and I do, again, I think for me and in this business and our approach, a lot of that um, has paid off. Mm-hmm. Uh, so in that, in that case, I would say for me, it's, it was the right plan, but I don't think it's necessarily the right plan for everyone. Right. No, I totally agree. And in terms of your first venture, the breathe bag, mm-hmm. what was that? Where did it come from? So my wife and her best friend who lives on the West Coast, um, they were early adopters of Bikram Yoga. Okay. And I was in business school and uh, our friend's husband was a, a new uh, corporate lawyer. And they were um, constantly stuffing all of their uh, yoga mat and their yoga gear into their work bags. And they'd go to work and they'd come back, they'd go to their yoga classes, they'd have all their sweaty clothes, they'd have the mat sticking yeah. out. So like any great you know idea, it's really just, well, we have this problem, this this practice is taking off like and you know we're fashionable we like you know to look good yeah this <laughs> seems like something that needs a solution so they really had the idea to develop this tote bag which was an innovative tote bag in terms of its design but it also had some functionality to it uh, in the way that it held your mat and in the way that it held your sweaty clothing mm-hmm. and we took that from scratch literally sketches to had it designed had it mass produced um, overseas, imported, sold it through, um, sold it directly, but sold it through a network of online and offline retailers. And it was, you know, it was a good small little business where yeah. we learned a lot. Uh, and a lot of it really helped inform some of the experiences, you know, that, that underlie this business. Right. So that was kind of like your first time, like dipping your toe, so to speak, in like entrepreneurship. In yeah. And it didn't really feel like it at the time. It just felt like a kind of a side project, mm. but you know, any of these experiences, um, you know, when you're really going through and handling all aspects of the business um, are phenomenally educational. You yeah. Spend a year at a big company and not have the same level of experience you have in a month or two doing a startup. Sure. And why did you guys stop there at the end? Um, kids. <laughs> oh. <laughs> um, you know, honestly, I think a big part of any successful entrepreneurial endeavor is the passion and drive of the founders yeah and even though uh, myself and the the, the other uh, husband we were sort of the business guys on this thing the passion project was really my wife and a friend and you know I think at the end of the day like their focus changed to building their families and mm-hmm. so it was something that um, you know had to take a back burner sure and so I want to talk a little bit more about your role working in you know the corporate institutions right what were some of the things that you liked and you didn't like about your role there and how they did things which you've brought into what you do now um well start with what i liked um you know you you work with the smartest people i've worked you know my last job um you know i worked with the smartest group of people i probably ever worked with being around people who challenge you intellectually like that Mm. um you know, and from a diverse set of backgrounds is something that is just amazing to be a part of. Mm-hmm. Um, the other piece of it was working at a big company, such a big company, having worked at much smaller companies, working at a big company like that and seeing how even as a big company, 
um, they were able to innovate. I worked at Comcast, which yeah. you know became uh, Comcast, NBC Universal, mm-hmm. and I was in the sort of digital consumer digital group there. Um, seeing how they were able to, even as a big company, stay fresh, stay ahead of things, and all the ways in which they did that, and to be a part of that was pretty amazing thing. How were they doing that? Uh, they do it in several ways, but um, the two that I was most close to was. Uh, they had a venture capital group that was out there investing in uh, and meeting with some of the most innovative companies out there across the whole range of right. technology, media, commerce. Right. Um, and then the other piece of it was through strategic M&A, which I was directly uh, responsible for, which is going out and you know acquiring companies that were either complementary to our business or that could be greatly advantaged by our business. That's just that's just one, those are just two examples. They do a lot of other things. They have a massive technology group that thinks about next generation set-top boxes and all that other mm-hmm. stuff. Um, but very innovative company for a big, you know, traditional company. Sure. Um, you know, on the other side of it, I think the challenge anytime you work in a big company is the fact that it's a big company. It takes a lot to move the needle. So yeah. you could work for an entire year on a project that is well-funded, well-resourced, you know, gets tons of exposure, and it goes nowhere, yeah. and nobody bats an eyelash about it. Mm-hmm. And that's just a reality of it. But for me, like, I had situations where I worked on something for a year, and it was a phenomenal success, and executed, and brought it to market, or got the deal done, or whatever it was. And then I worked on things for a year where, you know, it didn't go anywhere. Yeah. Um, and so that part of it is, uh, I think, if you're used to, you know, trying to, you know, make sure that your time is really going to yield some sort of specific result, um, that that part I think can, um, you know, for somebody who's worked in smaller companies, can be something that, you know, isn't the greatest. Sure. And I guess what kind of skills, whether that be managerial or process, did you take from that experience and bring into your current venture? I think the biggest thing about working in a big company is there's really two things. There's one, there's like a general spatial awareness that a person needs to have. You need mm-hmm. to understand the context. I think you under, got to understand the mood and the appetite of the, you know, of your immediate team, but of the broader teams and stakeholders that are going to be required to get your project through or your awareness right. Uh, right. On, on what it is that you're working on. Yeah. Um, and, and then the second really critical piece is how bringing, getting consensus, bringing people on board to get get momentum around a particular idea. Mm. Um, That is a critical thing. Even in a small company like this, um, it's very hard to get things done if you're not able to convince people why whatever Mm. it is you're trying to get them to focus on is important and what type of an impact it's going to have on the business. And you see people, the most successful people here are the people who are effective at articulating that Mm. and bringing people on board. People who are not are people who are just seen as kind of going rogue and, you know, just have a hard time really corralling and convincing people. So how can someone, like, how do founders do that? How how did you do that? Um, Again, I think it's experience. I think it's... Um, being honest, having humility, mm-hmm. um, not thinking that you know everything, yeah. um, you know, having a sense of humor about stuff, not taking yourself too seriously, yeah. um, and then you know, not 
having tenacity, I think you, you get, there's so many opportunities and excuses to not do it, right? So many people yeah. who, you, know, you can see them glazing over when you're giving them your pitch or telling them <laughs> what you want to do yeah. or asking them to take you on as a client or yeah. whatever. Yeah. And you know, you know, in those moments that, you know, you're going to have to dust yourself off and get back up the next day and do it again. So that is kind of, you know, that's how you do it. You just, you know, it's a combination of things. Right. So let's talk a bit more about Mac Weldon. So for those who don't know you guys, who are you and where did this idea come from? <laughs> well, I'll tell you where the idea came from and then it probably answers the other question. Um, the idea came from, it was the journey of a frustrated you know, customer. I basically hated the process of shopping for underwear and socks. Mm -hmm. I never uh, related to the marketing that I saw out in the world. I mean, I thought it was cool, but it never yeah. really made me want to buy anything. Mm. I never spoke to the things that I cared about with respect to this product category, sure. like performance and functionality. Um, the shopping experience was awful, uh, and it's awful for two reasons. One, generally you have to go to department stores, and I personally didn't like to go to department stores. I think most guys share that sentiment. And then the second is, there was the product landscape was always changing. So after you finally find something that you like, you can never find it again. And the reason why you can never find it again is because brands are constantly having to produce new stuff to get retail buyers excited. Mm -hmm. And so that results in a lot of inconsistency. And then the last piece of it was the product itself never really, you know, held up in my opinion to, you know, kind of the requirements of, you know, your underwear. So. You know, these are things that have a very specific performance requirement. It should stay put. Your shirt should stay tucked. Your sock should stay up. Like, mm. there were just little things, and nobody was really addressing those yeah. things. So I just felt like there was an opportunity to, like, fix the shopping experience, but also do some really innovative things on the product side. And so that's really what it was. Yeah. Um, the culmination of it all was... You know, my wife threw out all my underwear and socks because I refused <laughs> to shop for them. So I had to, like, go to the store that final time. Yeah. Um, and having had that last experience, I was like, I, I, I got to take matters into my own hands. Right. So we are a direct-to-consumer uh, menswear brand focused on premium essentials, socks, underwear, undershirts, tees. We've, uh, we've recently broadened to things like polo shirts mm. and sweats. Uh, everything we make has a very strong sort of performance story to it, technical yeah. performance story. Um, but we are a lifestyle brand. We use a lot of natural fabrics and fibers, and we blend them with uh, other natural fibers or non-synthetic you know, synthetic fibers that, that, have, that add to the performance of the product. Right. Um, and we try and make it really easy for guys to shop. Yeah. So it's not, you know, we're not, not reinventing the wheel, but we're just, you know, we have a very deliberate approach. Cool. So then once you identified this pain point for yourself and for other people, I guess, what did you do next? Well, the, the whole thing, whenever you're doing something like this, especially a consumer goods business, is you need, you, you need to have stuff to show people. Yeah. <laughs> Whether it's an investor yeah. or a focus group 
or a partner or somebody you're trying to, an employee you're trying to hire, you need to bring it to life. Mm-hmm. And it's very hard to do that uh, without, I mean, it costs money, you've got to, you know, you've got to invest the time, you've got to um, invest, be prepared to invest a certain amount of money just to have something to talk about, sure. right? Because how many parties have you been at where people are like, oh, that's a great idea, I want to make this pen that records everything you're saying mm-hmm. and stops recording when you stop talking. Like, yeah, that's cool, but like, where you can't really get it. Yeah. <laughs> so with this, it was it was just as much about the brand as it was about the product. Right. Uh, right. Because anyone can produce a product. You go to you go to Kickstarter. You go to GoFundMe. There's like hundreds and hundreds of products there. Yeah. We were um, we had some pretty ambitious plans on the product side, but we were also trying to create a brand, mm. something that people can visualize and have an emotional experience with that had a certain aesthetic, and so we simultaneously. Um, we're uh, very actively seeking a way to get product made so we can actually have something to touch. And then on the other side, really trying to establish the brand identity uh, and the overall sort of you know, design and aesthetic and you know, um, you know, visual elements so that people could actually see what we were talking, you know, feel what we were talking about, yeah. bring it to life. So you weren't actually stitching any pants together in the beginning? No. <laughs> no. Well, boxes. On no. Way. Nope. Well, like I said, it was like a simultaneous process. Sure. We had we we were we were investing a lot of time on the on the brand and the brand identity, and we were investing a lot of time on the product and the product story. Right. So, um, you know, we started out. It was like, all right, well, what's the? Let's just start out with socks, right? Mm-hmm. Socks are universal. There isn't sizing complexity. Like, there's a lot of white space. This was before there was like a hundred sock brands. Yeah. Um, and when we got into it, we said, all right, well, in order to tell the brand story, which is really about a certain aesthetic, but also a certain like kind of performance DNA. Mm. It really made sense to tell that story across a range of products, okay? Right, versus just one thing. You're able, we we're going to be able to have a bigger impact with the customer if we had more than one thing to offer them. And I think that ended up being a really smart decision. Mm. One because I, I do think it felt more kind of legitimate, but also because um, you know socks uh, as a specific category I think got really saturated it's also kind of a hard category to seriously differentiate yourself in sure and um, I guess from idea to getting the first sock out the door Mm -hmm. how long did that take and and how did it go it was about 10 months okay 10 months of building everything from scratch right the website the product line the fulfillment operations the supply chain um, the brand and it was just you and your co-founder in the beginning. Yep, uh, and, and a series of really amazing, you know, partners whom we still work very closely with right. on the product development side, but also on the brand side. And then, Pretty when did side. things really start to take off for you guys? You know, it's it's a little bit like um, step functions. Yeah. Um, you know, I think that we, again, we did it in a very unconventional way. You read about all these you know, successful Kickstarter campaigns where somebody comes out with like an innovative watch, takes, you know, they take pre-orders of the watch, they pre-fund their first lot of inventory, yeah. they, you know, they they demonstrate product market fit and then they, you know, hopefully go from there. We bought a gigantic amount of inventory, <laughs> a six-figure amount of inventory wow. across a range of product, wow. socks, two styles of socks. Uh, t-shirts, two styles of t-shirts, undershirts, two styles of undershirts, wow. underwear, 
uh, three silhouettes of underwear. And this so, is before you had any like pre-orders or anything? Nothing. So we loaded up the warehouse. We spent a lot of time, effort, uh, and hustle on PR, mm. uh, both ourselves and with a partner. And we lifted up the curtain one day and it was pretty amazing. Like I think once you, if you do that right, you really have a shot at getting to it. So that first, that first phase was really, you know, exceeded our expectations and then it became like, you know, okay, now what? Yeah. <laughs> now we're, now we actually, we're actually going to sell the product that we bought. So you're like, you're, you're, you're no longer scared that you're out going to be out that yeah. <laughs> money, but now it's like, oh, well, I got to buy more. I got to buy double. I got to yeah. buy triple. I got to buy. So it starts from there. Yeah. It is a good problem to have, but it's still scary. Yeah, very. So it's different when you get purchase orders from large retailers. Yeah. That feels like a much surer bet, right? Because mm. you're not necessarily, most of the time, you're not even ordering the inventory until you get that commitment. Sure. In this case, you're having to thread the needle on supply and demand, yeah. <laughs> which is very hard to do. So at this point, did you, like, how were you funding all of this? So we, uh, I funded it myself primarily until okay. we got to essentially launch. Okay. And then we raised um, a small amount of money in two rounds from like angels and friends and family. Okay. Um, and that got us pretty far. Mm-hmm. That got us from, got us almost two years. Wow. Yeah. You and know, you were generating revenue from, from, I guess, day yeah, one. Yeah, from day one. Um, and we didn't really spend, start spending money heavily on marketing until, you know, six, eight, nine months after we started. So. So PR was a, a huge driver for you guys. Um, you said that you hustled on your own and you had a partner. I mean, in the, in the startup world, I'm sure you're familiar with this, you kind of done things completely opposite in terms of what everyone says. It's like, start off small, have one product, test right. it out, take pre-orders, yeah. you know, don't spend any money on PR. Yeah. You guys did completely opposite. Yeah. You spent money on everything, <laughs> but it worked out. Yeah, I, you know, I think a lot of that is um, Silicon Valley startup hype. lore. I yeah. Mean, I think people like to say that, mm. but you know, I would I would sort of I would challenge that a little bit because you know, very rarely do you get a free lunch, and you're having to you know stand out. So, and I think in the consumer business, it's you know, I have a hard time understanding how you do it any other way because mm. you really only have one chance to make like a real significant first impression with the customer. And in addition to that, like if you buy into the whole Steve Jobs thing, it's like. I'm not, I mean, if I'm really doing something that A, I believe in and B, is like unique and differentiated and special, then I shouldn't need like, you know, 50 customers in a pre-order to like tell me that. I should have enough conviction to sort of like Mm. put it out there in the world. Um, So that's kind of, that was really the attitude that we had. And I think, again, it wasn't like money we were, I wasn't prepared to lose. Yeah. Um, hmm. I didn't like mortgage my house for it, yeah. but, but it was putting my money where my mouth was, yeah. you know, which I think is important. And before taking other people's money, I really felt it was important to like um, prove out that what we were doing was, you know, had, not, had a chance to be successful. So then you spoke about earlier that you did the PR stuff and PR was a great driver for you in the early days. 
and you didn't necessarily have so you had a warehouse from the beginning as well so you hear about these stories where people are selling stuff from their living room on the first order you guys didn't do that at all no you weren't fulfilling your own no. orders um and uh, you know i i told the story the other day um, back to the conversation we were having about breathe bags. Right. That was one huge lesson lesson from that. Okay. Right. So we would all we all had day jobs. I was in graduate school. The mm-hmm. other guy was like you know a lawyer. Um, our wives had jobs, um, working in various things, and we'd come home at the end of the day and we'd have to like pick, pack, and ship <laughs> like hundreds yeah. of orders. Yeah. And basically, what that did was a it made us kind of hate our side project. Mm-hmm. Uh, and B, it was taking away from our spending time thinking about the things that were going to actually drive the business, right? Like marketing and distribution mm. and new products and whatever PR. Mm. And so when I started this business, I was like, "There's no way we're doing that, right? We are not in the fulfillment business. Right. We're in the making stuff and selling stuff business." Okay. And so it was very important that we didn't get distracted by that, and we had to convince, you know, a pretty large, successful, like 3PL to take us on. And that turned out to be a great decision for them and for us, because it's been a great partnership. So initially they were like, this is crazy. Why would we do this? Yeah, I think they, you know, they, <laughs> no, it was, it was part of their business model was right. working with early stage businesses okay. in the consumer space. They worked with Bonobos in the early days, you know, so they had some experience under their belt working with companies like us. Uh, but they also work with Zara, you know, huge, yeah. you know, one of the biggest retailers in the world. So um, just to, you know, focus a bit more on the marketing side of things and how people are finding out about you. So we spoke about PR and before we actually started the podcast, we spoke a bit about advertising on podcasts. Yeah. So has that still been a great channel for you guys? And how did you figure out that this was going to be, you know, something to, to test? Uh, well, we knew there was an opportunity there because a lot of the people in our office was spending lots of their disposable time on podcasts, consuming podcasts. Yeah. And then when we looked around at the market at some of the peer companies that we like to look at, um, we saw a lot of them you know, starting to show up on podcasts. Interesting. And so we started out, we hired an agency, a small agency, to kind of get us up to speed. And we had some wins, we had some losses, you know, not really, nothing really like overly exciting. Um, but we had somebody on our team who basically came to us and said, look, I know this market. I know how to, I know how to make it successful. I'm a huge consumer. I know all the personalities. Mm. Let, me ha- let me have a shot at running uh, an equivalent budget to what we're paying the agency. Let me see how I can do. And his results were you know, 10x better than what we were seeing through the agency. Right. And that was really the, the real turning point for us where we were... We, we really started to define a certain approach that we're, you know, we've been able to scale, you know, to anywhere from 10 to just under 20% of our ad spend in a given month, wow. um, you know, on the channel. And and it's gone even beyond that. We've been recognized by, you know, major industry publications for, you know, our, our innovative approach. Mm. We've had, um, we did a live podcast read at South by Southwest two years ago wow. on Comedy Bang Bang, um, where uh, improv comedian Paul F. Tompkins yeah, did a whole that. vignette, uh, you know, a improv vignette um, on uh, as the CEO of Mac Weldon, and that thing still lives today. I mean, there's, yeah. there's like Reddit, Reddit. Uh, 
boards on it. There's articles been written about it. Um, and it's pretty, um, you know, so that's an opportunity. That, that's an example of not only did we get the read, mm. right, and the, the thing that we paid for, yeah. but we got all this extra content out of it mm. that still lives. Like if you do a search for it, like you see it, it still comes up in, you know, on Twitter and things like that. So the conversation still lives. And we see that. No, I don't think we've seen anything quite like that with others, but 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 examples of that, similar to that. Interesting. Um, and what was the, if you don't mind saying, what was the budget that you gave the agency that you then moved over to, individual? Let's say it was ten thousand and ten thousand. Okay. okay. And you got a much higher conversion with the yeah. individual. Yeah, and the, sort of. The, well, this wasn't about the agency. What it was about was creating a personal connection with with the personality. Mm. Not having an interme- intermediary do it, because this way the personality gets a real sense for the brand. And yes, they get a really sense, really good sense for us. We get a sense for how they like to do their thing, and we kind of let them do their thing. And 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 that just, you know, create, having that personal connection is really what gets people to go the extra mile for you. Right, and I guess in terms of so marketing, PR, and podcasting, what other channels have worked for you guys? Digital works obviously really well. Yeah, you know, the big players like Google and Facebook. Mm-hmm. We have an internal team that drives all of that for us. It's all measured. It's all very you know kind of ROI driven. Yeah, um, we've also seen a lot of success with content marketing. Um, mm. Sort of these networks where they promote content about you, and um, you use that as a way to qualify a customer and then get them to your site. Um, so you know. The, that's really the general mix. Then PR is something we still drive very aggressively, and then we do like smaller niche oriented but high value, like you know more straight up advertising. You know on you know men's sites, gadget sites, yeah. tech sites, things like that. Interesting. Okay, so so far it sounds like you have done everything perfectly <laughs> up until at least this point. Right. So I want to know what has been some of the biggest challenges you've experienced having an e-commerce business. Um, I mean, so far, you know, you had the brand, you had the product, you did PR, you sold out. This sounds a bit too good to be true yeah. so far. Like, what's been some issues you've you've seen? Well, some of the challenges are, there's challenges across the board. There right. are challenges, you know, anytime you enter a new product category, it's a challenge, right? Because mm-hmm. you're having to essentially invest capital in something that you have no track record on. Right. So you're having to go through that same process that we went through at the beginning again, even yeah. though you're three or four years old. So we face that uh, you know, on a pretty regular basis mm-hmm. anytime we do something new. Um, fundraising was always something that was and is a challenge. Mm. You know, we are not a company that has gone sort of bananas with you know, raising outside capital and you know, we're not like uh, grabbing any headlines on TechCrunch or anything like yeah. that. But you know, yeah. we have over the course of time, um, we are a consumer business, you know, it needs capital. So we have over the course of time fundraised and that is not only a distraction mm. to, the, to running the business, but it's just a challenge. It's a physical challenge, it's an emotional challenge. Uh, there's a lot of complexity to it. Uh, and, and over time, you know, we've gotten to a point where we're, we've been fortunate and we have great partners, but that is something that has been, uh, over the course of the years, a challenge. People, you know, making sure you get the right people in here, making sure you keep them motivated, making sure that you're evolving the organization as yeah. the team grows. Those are all things that like, you know, that's the stuff that we, that gives us a headache, you know, and not because we're bad at it or things are bad. It's just, you know, it's hard. What are some of the things that investors say or what were they saying when they wouldn't invest? 
Um, you know, the main sort of issue is there's really two things. One, you know, it's not sexy enough. Yeah. There isn't like, the, there isn't like a like a Warby Parker. Like we're taking something that that, that costs five hundred dollars and we're and, and we're we have this disruptive model and now it's going to be a hundred dollars. Yeah. The same thing. Yeah. Or some insanely technology driven widget thing, subscription razor blades. That was like a big thing. Yeah. Um, so there wasn't that like heat factor. I think that you know they want yeah. everybody could resonate with it, but mm. like. You know, so so that was one thing, and then the other thing was like, how big could it be, really? Mm-hmm. Like, how many twenty-four dollar pairs of underwear are you really gonna, you know? <laughs> how big of a market can it be? A venture? Yeah. Like, it'll be a great business, mm-hmm. but will it be a great venture business? Yeah. We heard a lot of that, and the truth of the matter is, is it's probably not a great venture. I mean, even if you're growing one hundred percent over one hundred percent per year, maybe that's not a good venture business. I don't yeah. know. I yeah. mean, I'm not sure. I mean, um, you know, venture guys generally look at binary kind of returns yeah. like really really high like 10x returns yeah. or zero yeah um but yet you see a lot of them playing in the space that we're in and companies that we're in and we have some that we work very closely with and you know i think everybody's kind of sobering up on things but um you know you end up with the right partner i think and that's a very important thing so that being said, how are you, you know, fighting off the competition? You know, the Banana Bows, the Outdoor Voices, Lululemon, for example. These are areas, I guess, I don't know if you consider yourself an athleisure brand. Yeah, um, not really. I mean, I don't, uh, I, I, that's a buzzword, I think. Athleisure? Um, athleisure is a buzz, buzzword. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I like the spot that we're in mm. uh, because there's really nothing trendy about what we're doing. Um, <laughs> I wouldn't say that. <laughs> you know, we are, I mean, everybody wears our product. Yeah. You know, every guy wears our product at some level. And there's an opportunity to, you know, capture market share of guys who are potentially, you know, Haynes jockey for the loon guys that we need to like pull into the more premium lane. Right. Uh, and there's plenty of guys already shopping in our, in our price point. Um, I don't really think about, I love, I mean, all those companies you mentioned, I think are great and I love and I'm a gigantic fan of. Mm. Um, I think everybody's got a little bit of a different angle on things, right. different product set, different customer base, different distribution model. And I think there's plenty of opportunity for each of us to have a big business. Um, you know, where we compete uh, or where you you see real competition is generally for advertising, right? Yeah. Like, you know, Harry's and Mac Weldon are not competitors, right? Mm-hmm. But like when we're, you know, when we're we're probably bidding for similar audiences on Google, we're probably vying for the same podcast. And it's not, in some cases, it's not a zero sum game, mm-hmm. right? You know, we can both be on a podcast because yeah, we're in different categories. But but that's more when I think of competitors, that's usually where I see it. Right. Not just, I mean. Stance sell socks, Mac Weldon sell socks. Can we each have, you know, a hundred million dollar business and, you know, still have lots of opportunity for growth? Yeah. Mm. I mean, Nike, Under Armour, you know, there's a laundry list of categories where you have many sure. major and minor and medium sized brands, you know, coexisting. That's interesting. And that doesn't worry you. Why doesn't it work? No. <laughs> I, I mean, it, it's just not. I mean, I think when I start worrying about that, we'll be yeah. we'll, we'll be so big that like you know, nothing, I mean, there's so many other things to worry about. Sure. So, do you guys ever plan to be in physical stores? 
Um, we have an interesting partnership right now with Equinox, which is um, they operate uh, over 100 retail stores inside of their gyms uh, across the country and uh, a couple over in Europe. Right. Um, and we are partnering with them on the launch of our new Airnet X line, which is a microfiber, more technical product, mm. um, you know, really designed for, you know, more active pursuits. Um, and that's been a great collaboration. Um, we love uh, we love their presentation. We love the association with them. Our guys are there. We don't have to compete with other brands. Yeah. Um, you know, the merchandising is really strong. So that's an example of the kind of retail that we like. Um, being commingled with other brands on a floor with you know lots and lots of underwear that, that that's really counter to why we started the business. So I don't think you'll see us in those kinds of environments. Right. But if we can have something unique, if we can own the conversation, if we can control the brand, yeah. if we can control pricing, those are all um, things that are really important to us. And if those, if we're able to check all those boxes, then we're very, very enthusiastic about partnering with offline brands. Going back to venture capital, you did actually raise some venture capital earlier this year. Um, what are you planning to do with that money? Like, what was it for? Um, a lot of our, a lot of the capital that we've raised goes into product, right. marketing, and technology, which yeah. are really the three main major pillars of this business. So, um, you know, you need you need product and working capital. Mm -hmm. You need to invest in that. You need to have it sitting in a warehouse. Fortunately, our stuff isn't perishable, so. You know, we sell it when we sell it, mm -hmm. as long as we have a business. Marketing is obviously a big uh, effort, you know, across all the channels that we're in. And then technology, really making sure that we have the right resources to be consistently, you know, optimizing our site, driving better conversion rates, making the customer experience better. That's all, you know, those are all the things that are kind of our lifeblood. So in terms of the capital, that's generally where it goes. Okay, interesting. Um, I'm just going to work towards wrapping up now, but I wanted to ask, what is your vision for Mike Weldon, and has it changed? Um, the vision is well, so the vision is to build a, build a business and brand that is um, so well defined that it can live without me at the helm of it. Yeah, and that's not because I have an intention of going anywhere. It just implies that things are legitimate, and we've established ourselves with our customer base. And we have a product strategy that is really kind of locked and loaded. We have a certain approach to our marketing that is really well defined and clear. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it, it implies a level of kind of authenticity and autonomy right. that I think many great brands do and mm -hmm. have been able to do over the course of long periods of time. Yeah. It would be unfortunate to me if we built up a big business, maybe we sold it to a bigger entity at some point down the road, and it just sort of like lost its way. Yeah. Uh, so to me, like whether it's Mac Weldon all the way to the finish line, you know, we go public, we've got stores, we've got, mm. you know, global distribution, uh, or whether or not we exist as part of a, you know, bigger platform. Um, I want to, I, to me, a successful outcome would be, you know, would be that would be to have something that can, you know, you know, exist long, you know, long after um, uh, when you're when you're gone. 
when some, I'm something some, for when the I'm kids. sitting on a beach somewhere. Something for the kids. When I'm sitting in the Maldives somewhere, <laughs> sipping a pina colada. Um, okay, some fireside questions right now. So, biggest inspiration to date? Hmm. My kids. Ah, interesting. I haven't had that one. <laughs> My kids. How old are they? I have a 12-year-old, yeah. a 10-year-old, and a 5-year-old. Okay, why? Why? Yeah. Oh, why? why yeah, well, no, not, not why did you have kids. I mean, like, <laughs> no, why are they your biggest, <laughs> why are they your biggest inspiration? They're my biggest inspiration because of their resilience. Kids are so resilient. Um, they're so intellectually curious. Mm. They are so passionate about things. Mm. And it's all very kind of um, pure. It's not really motivated. There really aren't any ulterior motives. It's really just like pure, mm. you know, um, the pure version of those things. So whenever I'm here and I have a bad day or a long day or a complicated situation, I go home and I'm able to sort of see them and interact with them, it, it really freshens freshens up your perspective on things. That's good. Need to get me some kids. Um, <laughs> Take your time. <laughs> What's your favorite book? That's a hard one. Um, you know, I, I, I'll just tell you a book that I recently read and everybody talks about it, so I feel a little cheesy saying it, Ooh. but I really like The Hard Thing About the Hard Things. I haven't actually read ben that Horowitz. one yet. Um, and I really liked it because it's, it's so um, incredibly accurate oh, yeah. uh, in terms of the like you know entrepreneur's journey and if I remember correctly I don't actually think Ben Horowitz was the founder of that business I think he became mm. the CEO of the business um, and he navigated that thing through some crazy crazy uh, shit if I can, you can say yeah. <laughs> um, and and basically the whole point I mean what, one of the major messages is is if there's anything screwed up in your business, it's your fault. Yeah. <laughs> and so there are days where I'm like, oh, you know, the blah, blah, blah team is screwing up or our process is terrible or yeah. why, aren't, why, aren't, why aren't we getting through to these guys? And, you know, I think all of there are all these examples in the book of, you know, not only tenacity and resilience and motivation and teamwork and just being a hard ass uh, but a lot of it is just this kind of repeated kind of mantra that like if something's wrong it's your problem so I really uh, that was really applicable to this right um, I don't know I like I really like bi um, biographies I, I go back and forth between fiction and nonfiction I really do like biographies presidential biographies I love the I love the Truman biography by uh, mm. David McCullough I believe it was like thousands of pages wow uh, fascinating. So we'll go with the hard things about hard things yeah. for now. Yeah. Okay, cool. And what's the one piece of advice you would give to startups starting out? Specifically in e-commerce, let's say. You need to have a thick skin. You can't, you can't take things personally. If you have an idea, if you have conviction about it, just keep moving it forward. Keep advance, uh, football analogy, keep moving the chains down the field, so to speak. Mm. Be honest. Be open-minded, be objective, but keep going. Because everybody has an opinion, and most of the time people are going to tell you things that are not uh, what you want to hear. Yeah. So, Should we take that on board, or should we just, you know, be like, okay, great, thanks, and keep it moving? 
I think you need to distill, you know, Let's get what the message things. is, right? Yeah. But, you know, somebody determining, somebody saying, I don't know how big this business can be or do people really need this? Like, mm. you know, there's a lot of subjective things that people say. Yeah. Um, but, you know, that's the whole point. If it was easier, everyone would do it. Everyone would do it. No, good. Yeah. That's a good point. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Brian. Yeah, thanks um, for having me. If people want to find you, how can they find you? Uh, at B Burger, B B E R G E R three uh, on Twitter, uh, and then of course the company is at Mac Weldon, uh, and then MacWeldon.com, M A C K W E L D O N dot com. Awesome. Thanks yeah. so much. Thank you. Just want to say another massive thank you to Brian and the Mac Weldon team for having me, and thank you for the boxes and the socks as well. They are honestly the most comfortable things I've ever worn in my life. And I'm not even just saying that because you guys are on the show. Um, those pairs of boxes that you gave me, game changer. <laughs> um, so, yes, as always, guys, thank you all so much for listening to the show. And if this episode or if any other episode has ever brought you any value, then please share it with your audience. You owe it to them. If you haven't already, guys, please subscribe and leave us a review. And until next time, keep grinding.